This is a Glass Box Media Podcast. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. There is growing concern in this country and fear about deadly attacks against transgender Americans, particularly trans women of color. A series of murders in different cities in just one week has underscored a larger pattern of violence over several years. And yet it comes at a time when trans celebrities are more accepted and more prominent in pop culture. Our mission at Death by Incarceration is to shed light on a system that viciously targets marginalized people. The United States is quickly moving back to the crime and punishment model that made us the most incarcerated country in the world. We feel our message and show are more important than ever. This country has a human rights crisis. It's not about politics. It's about what our moral obligations are to our fellow citizens and how we treat other human beings. In the words of the great Bell Hooks, For me, forgiveness and compassion are always linked. How do we hold people accountable for wrongdoing and yet at the same time remain in touch with their humanity enough to believe in their capacity to be transformed? During our first season, we realized that most of our conversations revolved around men, virtually ignoring the impact mass incarceration has on women and girls. Suave and I have interviewed over 20 women for our next series of episodes. We have some amazing stories to share and are proud of the work we've done to prepare for the next phase of our show. Over the past quarter century, there has been a profound change in the involvement of women within the criminal justice system. This is the result of more expansive law enforcement efforts, stiffer drug sentencing laws, and post-conviction barriers to re-entry that uniquely affect women. The female incarcerated population stands over seven times higher than it did in 1980. More than 60% of women in state prisons have a child under the age of 18. In this week's episode, we have a very personal conversation about trans rights, homelessness, criminalization of addiction and mental health issues, and how to best serve our communities with Deja Lynn Alvarez. Ms. Alvarez is an award-winning transgender advocate and activist with a long history of representing and serving marginalized communities. A native of Philadelphia, Ms. Alvarez is currently running for Pennsylvania's House of Representatives in the 182nd District. If elected, Ms. Alvarez will be the first Latina and the first trans woman in the Pennsylvania House and the first trans Latina elected in the nation. Your call to action this week, 2022 is going to be a pivotal election. Year. Please take the time to look at local races, find candidates that will represent both your values and your communities, and help them get elected. Thank you very much for listening. My name is Dejalyn Alvarez. Currently, I am running for state rep in the Pennsylvania State House, the 182nd District, which encompasses a large portion of Center City. I'm a very proud transgender woman. Latina, activist, advocate. I currently work two jobs while I'm campaigning. As uh, you know, we all know we live in a time where you know you have to, to work multiple jobs to make a halfway decent living, uh, especially if you're part of a marginalized group. It's, it's very difficult to find work that 
uh, pays a decent wage. So I am campaigning and working two jobs at the same time. So it makes for a, a very busy schedule. But um, let me see. My background, uh, my jobs are in public health. And I, you know, that's not where I come from. I don't come from a political background. I am someone that has had a very different lived experience than anybody that you would think would be in politics. I've gone from being on the street and being homeless, having to do survival sex work, uh, battling with drugs, to now somebody that has come back and has devoted the last well over a decade of my life to making change inside of all of those systems that I used to be a part of. And I think for me, that's what makes me being a political candidate now so different. You know, we always hear people talk about their vision for everything, their vision for everything, but where's your actual experience with it? You know, what have you survived? What have you lived through that gives you some actual experience in these areas to be able to speak for and to the people that are still currently affected by this? I guess, the, you know, I, I work for the Department of Public Health as the LGBTQ care coordinator, plus a lot more, and I'm the director of community engagement for World Healthcare Infrastructures, uh, formerly known as the Philadelphia AIDS Consortium. A lot of stuff. Yeah. Well, um, I'm the president of the Women's March on Philadelphia. <laughs> like the list goes on. But do you, do you sleep? Is the question. Uh, a little bit, with the help of a sleep aid. Yeah. Yeah. It's <laughs> tough. So. You know, I mean, there's so many questions we can ask you, and I know you and Suave are already familiar with each other, but, mm -hmm. you know, you're running for office and we, you know, as someone from the outside of Philadelphia who spent a fair amount of time there, especially over the last year working with Suave, talk to me about your vision for that great city, because, you know, it's still the, the poorest of the lar 10 largest cities in the country. And, you know, we've got some obvious issues, you know, and, and I think, um, you know, my personal opinion, you know, the direction Krasner has been able to take some of the issues around mass incarceration are great, but how can state reps jump in and help with that? Because this is not just a, uh, you know, we got a progressive DA going on situation. This is an all hands on deck. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's what people need to understand is that one person can't do it themselves. So I feel like th there's a lot of criticism around Larry and I know Larry fairly well and have done some things with him and I agree with what his vision is and where he's trying to go. I think unfortunately we're in a situation where he's not getting the support and communication that he should be getting and that he should be giving as well. He's a little hard to communicate with at times that would bring all of us kind of together so that we have a better understanding of where he's trying to go. And a lot of people that are mad at Krasner, it's because they don't understand the systems. They haven't experienced the systems, particularly the justice system. So they don't know how biased and unfair the justice system actually is. So right now, everybody sees this spike in crime and they think that this is Larry Krasner's fault because he's pushing back against the system that was set up to be racist and bigoted and transphobic and homophobic and all of these other things. And so he's really trying to make a difference there. People are worried about their safety, rightfully so. We had an incident here the other day in Philadelphia where a young lady bumped into a guy in the grocery store. She apologized to him, went home, he followed her home and then shot at her eight times as she was walking in her front door just for bumping into him. So. It's being in this weird place where I understand both sides. I see what, what Larry is trying to do. I also understand why people are afraid and they're worried about their safety. And, you know, whenever we're afraid of something and we don't fully understand something, we tend to look for someone to blame for it. And I think right now, a lot of people are blaming Krasner for everything that's going on. I think the blame is equally placed on all of us. And I was at a press conference a few weeks ago when Senator Street's office got shot up. And I was at the press conference with Senator Street and several other city officials and some activists. Larry was there and spoke. And, you know, when I spoke, I called Larry out, I called the mayor out, and I called the police commissioner out. I said, you three are so busy pointing the finger at each other refusing to communicate with each other 
Twitter wars, you know, doing different interviews where you're saying, well, this one isn't talking to me and that one's not talking to me and that one's not helping me. That's not what any of you were put in the position to do. You were all put in the position to represent us and think about us. Now we move to a topic that, quite frankly, is not discussed enough. Um, Domestic violence does not discriminate. It affects all people, all backgrounds, all genders. But there's research that transgender people, and specifically transgender people of color, are at a much higher risk for domestic violence and murder. According to the Human Rights Campaign, at least 16 transgender people have been murdered this year, including most recently uh, 22-year-old Tracy Williams from Houston. And these are just the ones that um, are reported. About half of these cases are from intimate partner violence. Being in politics now, I think part of being an advocate is understanding that it's not always, a, it's not about your personal feelings. It is about your lived experience, but you have to remember to remove your emotion and your personal feelings out of the way so that you can work with people and get things done. So I understand Larry's vision, but I also understand why people are concerned and are looking to point the finger as to why things are where they are right now. Agreed. I mean, also, like, I think jumping back to your experience, you bring a level of, like, you know, sincerity and sort of authenticity because you've lived, you know, I I was homeless on the streets of San Francisco. I can't imagine what it's like being homeless on the streets of Philadelphia, especially in the winter. You know, it's like a whole other, it's a completely different game. You know, we're not, we're not even playing the same ball game. And, yeah, um, absolutely. And, and so I think having that lived experience that you mentioned is key to the empathy that's going to be required going forward in a city like Philly. And, you know, I think one of the, the challenges that we all have is how do we make these changes and maintain our humanity and empathy on our end, too, because it's super frustrating. So maybe talk a little bit about how you've been able to maintain that, because obviously, in my opinion, talking to you already, I can tell that this is coming from a place of care and concern. This is not you're not doing this because you want to be famous. This is like you, you care about your city. Yes, absolutely. I'm never going to get rich or famous from doing this. Like, that's, <laughs> that's just the reality of this. And that's not what I'm looking to do. So for me, I I think that's been like my big thing without attacking my opponents, because I don't like to get into negative back and forths. I find that to be a waste of time and energy. I focus on the work. But like you said, you know, it takes a certain amount of lived experience. You have to understand something in order to be able to fight for it. Anybody can get up there and talk about housing for all because they believe everybody has the right to housing. Anybody can get up there and talk about, um, you know, the situation with with the lack of of good paying, you know, family sustaining jobs. Anybody can get up there and talk about addiction and how we should be working through the system. And I think that that's where we are at this period is that we have always traditionally elected people that don't have those actual lived experiences. And it has brought us to this moment where it's this side and this side fighting against each other. There are those of us that have not only lived it in their personal life, but then also lived it in their professional life, such as myself, right? Like I, you know, I've worked within the addiction system. I I helped, I was a co-founder and ran the first ever LGBTQ specific shelter and recovery facility. And um, so I work inside of that system. I work inside the public health system. I, I work with one of the biggest issues that we face, particularly with a lot of our clients is housing stability. And so when you're trying to provide medical care, mental health services, you realize that part of, of the reason why there's such a lack of access is because they're not even you know, stable as far as their living situation. It, it, you know, for me, I'm, I'm always seeing these people that are running for office. Oh, I'm running for office because I believe in $15 an hour minimum wage. I believe in housing for everyone. Okay, well, what have you done? What's been your work? And then before your work, what was your lived experience? Tell me how you actually understand not only what it's like to be that, but also how these systems actually operate. How much time have you spent inside of one of these systems to get a better understanding of how it operates and the things that need to change and maybe have an idea of how they can change? Everybody can get up and say, this is what I want to fight for. This is what I want to fight for. One of the things that I learned was that I also, and I said it earlier, I have to remove my personal emotions because a lot of these things are very personal to me in order to build relationships. That's how you get things done. That's how I've been able to do all of the work that I've done, particularly as a trans woman. 
I learned that you you have to figure out ways to sit down and communicate with people, people that you traditionally would not communicate with. My advocacy and activism started out of years and years and years of abuse by the police. And now I get criticized for the work that I actually do with the police. But what people don't talk about is that I helped create new policies and directives within the police department. I helped train the Philadelphia Police Department on how to be a little less biased and set in place directives and policies on when they are dealing with someone, how they they have to treat them and the ways that they have to do it. And then also putting in place disciplinary action that's actually written into their directives now. Now, does that change everything? No, it doesn't. It definitely doesn't change everything. But it does allow for an open line of communication between myself and the communities I represent. I'm from Philadelphia, so I'm kind of familiar with your work. We know some of the same people. But for the last year, year and a half, we've been seeing a lot of violence against trans women in Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. Do you think our city officials and leadership are doing enough to protect trans woman in Philadelphia? Because I, you know, every time you open the paper, every time you put the news out, somebody's getting killed. And me working down South Philly where I was working at, you know, I could only imagine like, was this a hate crime? Was this something that just happened randomly? Or what that person was chosen because there was trans? Mm -hmm. And I wonder, you know, and I even asked some city officials, yo, no, it was randomly. But being from the city and from North Philly, you know, I know that a lot of that shit was not randomly. So what do you think? Do you think our city officials are doing enough to protect trans women? The short answer to that, no, absolutely not. I, you know, it's, it's only a discussion when another one is murdered. And then, you know, all of the news stations are reaching out to me and all the officials are reaching out to me. And, you know, I'm working closely with the police and with the press so that it gets reported correctly, it gets addressed correctly, so that the victim or their families have the kind of support that they need to deal with the justice system once this happens. So, no, the short answer to that is no, I do not. What I can say is that I have seen a lot of progress from, you know, when I was here in the late 80s, early 90s until now. And I do believe in some level that we are targeted. I know I am a, you know, a survivor of rape. And there was an instance where I was literally told by the person, like, what are you going to do? Report me to the police? And the thing is, he was right, because reporting, if you were a trans person, you couldn't report anything to the police, nothing. There, there was absolutely, because the first question was always, well, what were you doing? What were you doing? And, but I, I think that that also plays into a larger conversation of that there, what I've learned is that there are other groups that still face the same thing. You know, when I first started my advocacy, it was it was around being trans and then it was around being LGBTQ. And now it's expanded so much beyond that to immigrant and undocumented and, and black folks and, you know, anybody who's marginalized. If we actually all sat at a table and talked about our problems, we would realize that we have a lot more in common than where than what we don't have in common. Like right. our differences tend to separate us, but if we could actually sit down and talk about our commonalities and get over our own personal biases towards each other, then we would make a much stronger group that would be able to push back and really make change in the systems that need it. The way we treat trans individuals, especially trans women, and really trans women of color, is horrible. Supporting those very vulnerable populations is something that we need to do so intensely and we fail so incredibly at that it's not that surprising that they don't feel like they belong in the world and that they uh, have a place here. So, you know, our show deals with criminal justice issues and we always examining anything to deal with criminal justice. And I can't help but realize that when it comes to services for trans coming out of prison, there's really very little services in the city of Philadelphia. And I'm talking about reentry service. And, and when they do go to certain organizations in the city, which I'm not gonna call out today, 
because I'm, I feel I feel good today. Normally, I call all these organizations out. That's what I do. <laughs> they always, I'm all right with calling them out. They always, do. They always get the runaround. They always get, well, you got to go to this place. We don't provide this service. And, you know, and I always wonder, why are our state reps not stepping in and demanding that these organizations that receive the money from the state to provide this service, provide a service whether you're trans, straight, LGBT, well, I don't care what you identify with, what pronoun you identify with. If that organization has got a budget to provide a service, that service must be provided. 1,000% yes. So, so as a state rep, what will you do different? You know, because I want our listeners to understand, right, that we're just not bringing somebody on the show because we lend in our endorsement. We're not doing that. We're bringing people on death by incarceration because we believe that you can make a difference. We believe that it's people like you, and no offense, the little people that normally don't get the publicity by mainstream media are the one doing the work in Philadelphia and in other cities. You know, so what would you do if you get elected to become state rep different, to demand that these organizations that are receiving the money provide that service? So as state reps, our job is to help create and then vote on legislation that will that will help the people of Pennsylvania. Like in the state house, that is what our job is. So having somebody with a voice like mine, with an understanding like mine, allows me to bring other folks, like Suave say, up to Harrisburg to sit down and talk about whenever there's a piece of legislation around incarceration or anything like that. It is voices like Suave and others like him that are doing the actual work should have direct access to somebody like me before I vote or create or support or lend my name to any piece of legislation around, like with Suave, I'll just use incarceration. If I'm going to be taking a look at pieces around pieces of legislation around recovery, I'm gonna reach out to the different groups of people that I know that are doing boots on the ground work in the recovery system and make sure that we are all sitting around a table going over this so that it is their voices being represented by my vote, by my, you know, my support of the bill or, you know, anything like that. And I think that that's that's one of the things that we're missing. We're missing somebody that is really in touch with the streets, with how people are actually living with the most marginalized communities. We are missing that. Most folks don't have good intentions But if you don't have those built-in relationships and you don't have a certain understanding of it, you're looking at it from your point of view rather than making sure that you're bringing everybody else in to give their point of view on it and not the people that are already getting the funding, not the people that are always the big organizations that get all the federal grants, all the state grants, all the city grants, all of that, but people that are actually boots on the ground making a difference every day with no money, with no funding, those are the voices that need to be at the table. Also, I just as a legislator, you also have some input over budgets and resources and how those are allocated. And that's very important. That's what needs to be done differently. We need to have people in there that are willing to really just do what I already said, making sure that all of the people that are boots on the ground doing the work already, that they have a place a seat at the table, so to speak, since we always talk about the proverbial table that everybody lacks access to. So making sure that all of their voices are heard. It's it's not me going to Harrisburg and just using my voice. It's me going to Harrisburg and using my my relationships and the the connections that I have in all of these different areas to make sure that we're all kind of there together and that it's, it's all of our voices. And I think that's that's what makes me different. Well, and not to mention the the years of work that you've done in the community that don't get reported. You know, you had to live in, in North Philadelphia to really understand the work that you've done and other advocates have done to get to even where we are today. We don't have much, but we have a little bit of stability than what we had in the early 90s and, and late 80s, you know. And that's because of the work that you've done and other people have done. I still feel, you know, my job is to analyze and criticize 
um, politicians and lawmakers, period. That's what we do yeah. at death by incarceration. You know, that's why we're here. And, and, and to protect the rights of those marginalized communities, such as people coming home from prison, right? When it comes to job, fair housing. And in Philadelphia, there's an issue where you come home from prison, you don't have no credit, you can't get no, no housing. And if you are transgender or gay, you got a double whammy. You yeah. definitely ain't getting in, right? So what, what is your stand on criminal justice issues? Do you believe in second chance? And do you believe that if a person goes to jail, serve 30, 40 years, and come home, transform, do you believe that person deserves a seat in that invisible table that nobody see? <laughs> you know, like, like you said, right? Because... Philadelphia is creating marginalized communities when we release prisoners and they maxed out. That means they're not on parole, no supervision. But yet they don't have, they instantly become homeless and they end up in our city shelters. Well, not only do they end up in our city shelters, but then they end up having to resort to maybe doing something that is illegal in order to try and get food, try and get a place to live. And then we throw them right back in the system. And so one, you know, there are very few crimes that I think anybody should be serving 30 to 40 years of their life for. So let's start out there. I think there are a lot of people that get sentenced to almost a lifetime of prison. And then, like you said, then they're just thrown to the wolves. And then the ones that do come out on probation and parole, probation and parole was set up for them to just be put back into prison. Probation and parole says, you have to find a job. Well, how are you supposed to find a job when you have that kind of record? Because anybody that takes a look at your record decides, oh, you're not hireable. So we have to talk about people's records and how long that record stays on, you know, stays visible to employers and, and other things like that. We also have to talk about how probation and parole deals with people. I have a lot of people that come in from probation and parole, they find a job, but their probation officer, they have to go see their probation officer every Wednesday at one o'clock. But this new job that they were lucky enough to get has them working every Wednesday at one o'clock. So now they go to the probation officer and say, hey, I got the job. You wanted me to get a job, I got a job. Can we change when I report to you? And then the probation officer will not even give them the leeway to change their appointment. So now this new job that they got, you know, they're going to lose the job because they can't work the hours that the job is requiring. So the entire system all the way through is just messed up. We have to recognize that when it was created and who created it, it was not created for these times. And I, my nephew, my own nephew, my sister's eldest son, just got out of jail maybe a year, about a year now, did seven years seven years in his early 20s did seven years he gets out he gets a job he goes to work every day he stays out of trouble and his probation officer and the whole parole system did everything they could do to get him locked back up rather than there be services that support you once you come home and anybody that has served that long a period of time there should be support services in place to help keep you from going back into the system the way our system is set up it's like a big circle you get out you're either on probation and parole or you're not but then you don't have access to anything jobs housing food clothes many people don't have their family to rely on and so then what do you do you have to find a way to survive so i think that the whole system honestly needs an overhaul there needs to be justice reform and that isn't just with police that is the court systems probation and parole providing services for individuals that are coming home all of that should be part of every federal state and local budget is how do we prevent people from going back to jail how do we help them get the things that they need in order to be able to live a what society considers a productive life. My name is Suave Gonzalez, and I approve this message. <laughs> My name is Kevin McCracken, and I approve this message. Yes. That is spot on. I mean, and when you think about it, we've got so many people on parole and probation longer than their actual sentences. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, we've got one on this show right now. Suave's Suave's parole is lifetime. He was resentenced in what 2018. 17. 17. Went after 31 years, he got out, then went back for 85 days because of some comment a woman made about he was came up here without any investigation, parole sent him back. Didn't even yeah. violate him, just sent him back. So he was like in no man's land. You know, and when they let him out, they're like, just get out. You got to get out. There was no prep. There was no way he could tell anyone it was time to go. I mean, the way that the whole thing went down, the good news is he got a little revenge because he went down to the parole office and made the the guy that sent him back cut his his anklet off, his ankle bracelet off. But um, (laughs) in public, outside, (laughs) it's the little wins, right? but, But the reality is this, right, that we don't have enough leadership with common sense in these positions, they say, you know what? Why should a person that served 31 years, a person that this concrete evidence that somebody else committed this crime should be on lifetime parole? There's no common sense people up there saying that, right? Everybody is, well, at least you out. I'm not really out. I'm still part of the system. I'm still being counted in the system, essentially. Because as long as I got parole, On my tail, I'm still part of that DOC. Yeah. You know, because when they ask you, what is your number? I got to say ASO834. I can't say Suave Gonzalez. No, I got to say ASO834. When I report to parole, it's ASO834, right? Yeah. And to me, that's a community problem. And you know why it's a community problem? Because the community has the voting power to say, you know what? I'm not gonna let you keep my son, my daughter, my grandkids, my nephew on this system forever. If you don't do the right thing, when them two years for state reps come around, we're gonna vote you out. And in Pennsylvania, I keep telling my people, ex-offenders, I'm talking to you directly right now. You have voting power. As soon as you step out that prison, you can register and vote. You stab voting power. How is it that in the city of Philadelphia, we have 275,000 people, ex-offenders, that could vote? And we don't have somebody up there talking common sense. Like, why is all these people, they serve 30, 40 years? I'm even, I'm ashamed to tell people I served 30 years because when I look at Joe Legan, when I look at all these other people that served 40, 50, 60, 65 years in prison, my 30 years is real small compared to them guys. So a person that served 65 years should come home now and be on parole? Are you kidding me? And the thing is the same amount of money that we spend on the probation and parole, we could take and cut that budget by a lot and utilize those resources to put into providing services for that person that comes home after all of those years. Everybody says the money's not there, the money's not there, the money's not there. The money's not there because we are not honestly taking a strong, hard look at what money we're already spending. The drug war deals with people even if they've never stepped foot in a jail or a prison. So if we talk about the women that go to public hospitals, that get tested, that lose the, their, the custody of their children, if we talk about the women that are having to deal with the collateral consequences of the drug war and housing, if we talk about the women that are trying to keep their families together in deportation settings, if we talk about the, di- the, 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 disma- the dissemination of criminalization throughout this whole process and how women continuously are the people that are trying to hold it together based on our role in society, if we're not having a conversation about mass criminalization, then we've missed the boat on how we're going to dismantle the thing in the first place. There are a lot of services in this city that lack. And like you, I don't want to attack anybody, but let's talk about the Office of Addiction Services. The way that they are providing treatment to people, I want to see clear data that shows me that the hundreds of millions of dollars that we're spending a year on addiction services is producing results. Because I can tell you as somebody that worked inside of that system, it's not producing results. What it has produced is a revolving door for people to go out, come into a recovery facility, be counted as one of the beds, you receive money for that bed, however long that person stays there, 
Then when that person is out because maybe the insurance will only cover 90 days, maybe the, you know, the budget only allows for a certain amount of days, whatever it is, then they're back to doing what they're doing and then they're back to the recovery house again. How many people come to me when they're ready? They're like, Miss Deja, I am, I've hit rock bottom. Because if you know anything about addiction, a lot of times you're told like you have to hit rock bottom before you're ready to, to deal with this. Okay, I've hit rock bottom. Now I should be able to take you directly somewhere where you can get the services needed, the mental health, the emotional, you know, the support that you need while you are in the headspace to try and get clean. But instead I have to send you to this main center where you have to sit in a chair 24, 48 hours. If you're cold, you're hungry, you're tired, you can't fall asleep because the guard there is screaming at you every time you start to nod off. They don't give you, you're in there, you don't have the right clothing on, you're, you know, it's not, the, the temperature isn't right in that place. I've sat in those places with people and I've watched how these people are treated. And in that, in their most vulnerable moment, they are treated as though they don't matter. They are disrespected by everyone that works in this place that is supposed to be helping them find a place where they can get the services needed. So after a little time with that, they're like, you know what? Now I'm coming down off of whatever I was on and now I'm craving it again. And I see that I'm being mistreated in here. I might as well go back to doing what I was doing. And so now we've lost that opportunity to help someone, to help an individual. Um, get out of the situation that they were in because we are spending too much money time and time and time and time again on ineffective services, on systems that we know don't work. Hey, we have this system in place, so it must be okay. Who's doing the research? There was a lady, and I don't care who hears this, there was a woman that worked at Office of Addiction Services, I don't know if she's still there or not, I should say her damn name, that worked at Office of Addiction Services. And when I was running the shelter and recovery facility, I kept asking for help. I kept asking for funding. I kept asking for support and they refused to give it. And this is this is where I talk about how I learned building relationships with people that are in power is how you can make a change. So that's why I have all these different relationships, even though I get criticized for it, but people aren't there when I'm walking a rape victim down to special victim services and I'm on the phone with you know one of the lieutenants or someone else before I'm going there to make sure that the detective there has a heads up that I am coming with this undocumented immigrant person that just you know was assaulted or you know whatever the case may be where they may get disrespected and their their case may never be heard. So I had to go to the mayor and ask the mayor, listen, I need help. This place is, is desperately needed and I can't get any help. And I, I literally had to get the mayor to, you know, kind of help get a, a little bit of funding so that we could at least keep the doors open in that place. The woman from Office of Addiction Services started targeting me and targeting the facility that I was running because she was angry that I was able, able to go over top of them to get funding. She would come in and do her inspections and she would complain if the people that were that were staying there, if their shoes weren't lined up correctly under the bed, if she wiped her finger along a baseboard and there was a little bit of dust. Working a full-time job and running a facility that's housing 30 to 40 people at any given time, and you're worried about how their shoes are lined up under the bed, rather than making sure that we have enough food, making sure that we have the services needed for the people that are there. That's what's wrong with these systems. And that's just part of the experience that I take with me to Harrisburg. I mean, yes and yes and yes to all of that. I mean, I, I, mean, I can't I, even- I, I, I think you on point with everything, right? <laughs> and um, because when Kevin, every time Kevin come to Philadelphia, I always love taking him through Kensington because I started in my career, my job, whatever you want to call it, at Prevention Point. Yeah. And from there, I went to the 25th District working in the Divergent Court through Prevention Point. You know, but what bothers me, and it still bothers me to this day, and I'm not going to put no names out, but it's like, like you said earlier, it was like a revolving door. Mm -hmm. What are we really doing? Are we really serving? Or are we enabling people to get high because I'm one that don't believe that no safe injection site should be in my community, especially when I got to deal with the people down KNA. I got to see my children and I got to see children walking through all that mess and filth 
that these streets are. And I always said, if you want to do safe injection site, take that shit to Center City. Take it to Center City. <laughs> take it to Society Hill. Take it to Chester Hill. And let's see how it works. And then we bring it here. But don't put it in a community already that's falling apart, right? Because I'll be honest, most of the people that's down in, in, in Kensington and k and are not from this community. They're coming from suburban Philadelphia to come get high down here. They're messing up this community. They're staying in the community. And dope, hardworking people that live in the community suffer the, the consequences. Because mm-hmm. we the one that got to step over the needles. We the one that got to make sure that nobody break into our house through the back door. You know, and yeah. when I was working at Prevention Point, it was almost like, well, buddy, this is how we doing it. Because that's when I really understood that a lot of this stuff is a grant game. This is about getting big grants. This is about saying we've given out a million needles, needle exchange, you know, like, I always had a problem with that. With I'm giving you a set of needles and you shooting up right in front of me. Like, is I'm really helping you at all? Nah. Well, so I have an argument there. And oh, that's no, we, only we, because- We yeah. welcome your argument on this show. We welcome it, and um, I, I don't think I'm a maybe not an argument, but I have a, a little bit of a disagreement there. Yeah, I don't think I'm um, arguing with you because I, I have a amount of respect for you, but that that's just me personally. Yeah, no, because, and I I get that. I, I because, completely understand that point of view. And because I know what addiction looks like, because I had a niece, I had a niece that was murdered on December twenty first, two thousand and twenty because of her addiction, you know? And I seen her go through it. I seen one of my sisters that recently passed away go through addiction. And, you know, so I'm speaking from my lived experience that I think that we need more people in power that could, I'm calling you out if you don't do the right thing. And I don't care if you talk to me, I don't care if you vote for me or not. Those are the type of people that we at Death by Incarceration want to support and stand behind because we're just not talking to talk. Yeah, We're talking from lived experience. I suffered 31 years of incarceration. You know, I've seen addiction destroy my family. And and, and to me, it's like, where is our leadership? Where is our leadership? And the problem that we have is that the two Latino state reps that we have in the house in Pennsylvania really don't have no power or really want to be in bed with the rest of the state reps. So they don't make a lot of waves. They really don't. And, and I don't mean to put their name out, but the two Latino state reps that we have right now are Angel Cruz and Daniela Bugos from Philadelphia. And, you know, they do what they could do in the, in the community, paint the picture, we throw the Latino festival. But to me, I don't give a fuck about no festival. I really don't. I don't give a fuck about no feel good music. You bringing an old washed up artist to my community, but my community after that artist leave, it's the same. It's the same. So you just pay that guy $20,000 to come sing a song from the 80s when you could use that $20,000 to help a returning citizen, a single mother, or perhaps a family that's in need. Because that's the way I look at things. I'm realistic. Yeah. No, I get it. I get it. But so, you have so, to come from a certain place to, to be able to understand that view, right? And I think that that's a lot of what is missing especially in Harrisburg, is that there aren't people that understand it. And the only reason that I push back on the you disagreeing with the needle exchange is because um, of my experience working in public health. So I understand, you know, hepatitis. I understand HIV. I understand how communicable diseases operate, especially when it's when it's kind of crossed with addiction. So providing those needles to at least be able to use clean needles reduces the spread of hepatitis, reduces the spread of HIV, reduces the spread of several other things that can be spread by dirty needles. So I absolutely understand your point of view. And I think that if we're going to be offering clean needles, we need to be offering other services at the same time. I agree with you about not putting safe injection sites in a community that is already ravaged. I don't think we should be putting safe injection sites inside of anyone's community. We have many areas of the city that are not residential areas. And that's where we should be looking at to put 
a safe injection site. I do believe in safe injection sites. I've looked them up. I've looked up the data where other places that have done it, that they have a, a, a decent success rate. I think they can work, but I agree with you. I don't think we should put it right inside of a neighborhood that is already ravaged, you know, by addiction. Also, I, I think you're dead on as far as holding everyone accountable for it. We should, that's, we're getting voted in to be accountable to the people that we're supposed to represent, right? Like that's our jobs. Our job is to represent the people. How are we representing the people if our table doesn't have the people at it, as we, you know, have already said, right? Like, why are you not at the table? I said it earlier, I know for me, any piece of legislation that would come across my desk that involves incarceration or, you know, addiction or anything else that I know you've done the work in, you would be one of the first phone calls I make. Hey, you know, when I'm not in session up here in Harrisburg, I'll be in my center city office on this date, or can you come to Harrisburg for this? And I think that's, we're missing a line of communication between Harrisburg and the people. I also will say this, that Democrats do not have control of the legislature. It's a Republican-led legislature. So, you know, I can tell you what I stand for, what I represent, how I will try to always do things. And when I don't, I want people like you to have my cell phone number and call me up and be like, hey, what's going on with this? Or I didn't see you as part of this, and I think you should have been, because I am going to miss things. And I want to be held accountable for that. But I want us to have an open line of communication where it's not a situation that you feel like you're being completely ignored. So now you have to go to social media or go to your podcast because you don't have an open line of communication with the people that are supposed to be representing the people. Also, I think that there's, you know, there's a certain amount of marketing in politics. There's a lot going on that is not being shared with the voters, with the people, with everyone that's involved. So you don't know about it until the legislation is passed. And for me, you know, looking at that, like for me, that's a lack of marketing. Like part of that is communication. Part of that is making sure everyone knows what we're up to at all times. Everyone also translating. I don't know if you've ever tried to sit down and read an actual piece of legislation. Hundreds of times I've sat down and <laughs> I even wrote bills with certain um, state rest when there was an office, such as Ron Waters when he was in office. Mm -hmm. And this is why I'm speaking, because I just feel that I want my state rep to be the person that we could call. I mm -hmm. want my, not only for this is going on in the community, but how you doing? You know, I ain't seen you at this news conference. What can we do to make sure that you get involved or make sure that they involved? You see, that's the type of state rep I want. Not the state rep that come once a year for a photo op when it's time to run again with false promises, because we got that already. I want to see the yeah. real state rep that when we invite you, come down to our place. Come down, that's it. Come in your pajamas. Who cares? Right. Well, the other thing is people have to understand that as a state rep, we're elected to represent a specific district, but our vote and our support on pieces of legislation affect the entire state, the entire Commonwealth. Yes. So you should be able to reach any state rep. Right. You should be able to talk to the state rep in Southwest, talk to the, the state rep up in Northeast, talk to the state rep from Center City, talk to the state rep from South Philly. Yeah, but what you have now is state reps are saying, well, um, out of respect for such and such, I'm not going into that district. You have a lot of state reps that do that. I understand that, but I'm like, that's full of shit. It's but bullshit that's why when you wanted our support, you came to wherever you had to go. You know, and I'm talking from experience. I know politicians that came up gratis for and asked us to campaign for them, even though we were serving time in prison. Why? Because they recognize that our reach to the community was to they votes. And if you don't believe it, ask Larry Krasner. Who put Larry Krasner in? I mean, ex-offenders. He campaigned three times in Gratifold Prison. How I know this? Because I was the president of the Latino organization and I was the person responsible writing the memos to get him in. So what I'm saying is like, yo, if you able to do that, then you when you win, you should be able to do the same thing. I'm coming in there and see what's the problem. You know, and not to tweak nobody's home, but when I called, I need a Bugos. I need you to come down here because we need guidance with this program. I called him yesterday. He said, I'll be there tomorrow, 11 o'clock. 
I told you he's a good guy. He's one of my favorites. Honestly, and, but. and what I'm saying, what I'm saying, this is not an endorsement on him and nothing. I'm just saying those are the type of people that you want to put in office. He was right. responsive. Those are the type of people that can say, you know what? It's not my district, but what I'm gonna do, I'm gonna take this to the Black Caucus and see what we can do to help. Yeah, that's the type of state rep that I want to be connected to, and I hope that my community in Philadelphia feel the same way. Somebody that we could reach, somebody that we could talk to, somebody that we could get some advice from, you know, because state reps has a lot of power in the community. Their whole, their whole position where, you know, they could make shit change for somebody. You know, a state rep could get you a job faster than I can. Oh, absolutely. You know, if a so, call comes from a state rep's office versus, you know, somebody else, People, when they pick up that phone, that hi, this is State Rep Danilo Burgess' office, they're like, uh oh, oh, okay, a state yeah. rep. And that's what we should be utilizing that for. Um, but the, the other thing is that as state reps, we should all be working together. So if you have an issue in Donna Bullock's district and you reach me, I can pick up that phone and call Donna. Hey, Donna. Or I can walk over to her office in the Capitol when we're all in session. Hey, Donna, can we talk after this? Or Joanna McClinton. Hey, Joanna, can we talk after this? So then I can say to Joanna and Donna or Donna or Angel Cruz or whoever, like my job is to have relationships with all of these people so that when you do call, even though it's not my district, we can work on something together. It's not, we shouldn't be territorial. Right. right like center city is not mine it doesn't belong to me it belongs to the people so therefore right. anybody should be able to you know danilo burgess or donna bullock or joanna mcclinton or you know whoever should be able to reach out to me and say hey i got a phone call from somebody in center city they're trying to do this and they need some support my thing's going to be heck the more the merrier let's both go down there that brings more you know, kind of shines more of a light on whatever program it is we're going down there to support. I'm not going to be territorial and be like, no, listen, this is my district. Stay over there in yours. Because that's not what it's about. And that's when we let our own personal feelings and emotions get in the way of what we're supposed to be doing. Before we leave, why should the people of Philadelphia vote for you for state rep? <laughs> I mean, we ask this because we want our <laughs> yeah. listeners in Philadelphia to know that Oh, we have somebody, we have the opportunity to vote one of our own. Mm -hmm. They understand, when I say one of our own, I just don't mean Hispanic. I mean a person from the community that's been through the trenches, they understand the issue, both sides, not just one side, and is willing to play fair. Why should the people of Philadelphia give you their vote? Well, thanks for answering that for me. You just answered it, right? Because people need to understand that, you know, I feel like we've had enough of this born and bred politician. This, you know, person that has their kid, has their wife or their husband on their arm and look at us, we're the perfect little family. And, you know, I have a doctorate or I'm a lawyer. And so therefore I sh I'm the one that's qualified to represent you. No. What makes people qualified to represent people is when they have the actual lived experience of the people. And we have too many folks, even ones that I'm running against, that if we ask, what work have you actually done? What community-based work have you done? What community have you affected change for in your work? Answer those questions. And for me, every bit of work I've done has been about communities, not just one community, because some people try to pigeonhole me as, oh, she's just a trans activist. No, I'm an activist that happens to be trans. Doesn't mean I'm only, you know, an advocate for trans people. It means that I am an advocate for everybody and anybody who needs it. And that's what we need in Harrisburg. And, and you know, to touch back on, remember, although they draw lines, what is supposed to be our district, I will always remember that I am representing the all of the people of Philadelphia and Pennsylvania, not just because my, my district happens to have a lot of wealthy people in it. And so I'm not just representing them, I'm representing everyone. And so I will be somebody that you have direct access to. If you don't have direct access to your state rep or to whoever it is that you, you wanna call my office. I'm not gonna say, oh, we can't help you because we're not in that district. 
what I will do is either figure out a resource for you or who else I can talk to that can come help you. And that's what we need. That, that's, but that's what my work has always been. So I will just still be doing the same work, just on a larger scale, which for me just makes sense. It makes sense to take that same work in and Harrisburg. Where people, where people could contact you that want to get involved in your campaign, what is your website? Can you put it out there so people can hear it? Absolutely. So it's Deja, D-E-J-A-F-O-R-P-A.com. So Deja4PA.com. I'm going to say this too. Politics, a lot of it is about money. I don't have access to a lot of money, but we have to raise a lot of money in order to win this race. And so if you believe in this message, you believe that we need more people like us in office, whether you donate a dollar, $5, $10, or just share the message, share the website on your page and ask your friends and family, hey, you know, can you donate a dollar? Can you donate $5? Because we need to make this happen. We need to change the face of politics. We need to change how politics are done. Then, you know, share that message, share my campaign page, you know, donate if you can afford to. And if you can't, sharing helps. So that's like a big ask because people don't realize it costs a few hundred thousand dollars to run a race. I'm someone that works two jobs to pay rent and make my car insurance. So, so in every show, Kevin and I, we ask our guests for a call to action. So we're going to ask you today, what is your call to action for the people? My call to action for the people. I understand why a lot of people don't get involved in politics, particularly marginalized communities, because they feel as though politics has never benefited them. They've never been a part of it, so why should they bother voting? The only way that we change that is by voting, recognizing that our vote is power, our collective vote is power, and that if we do vote and we vote carefully, we pay attention to who we're voting for, we will change politics. And that's how we change the systems that are in place that continue to keep all of us oppressed is by voting. We have to utilize that power. And again, as a, you know, as a Latina trans woman that lived on the street, that did all that, I understand what it feels like to not want to get involved in politics because you feel like, oh, that's not going to help me. But actually it will. Sometimes we have to think in long term rather than short term. In long term, we can really make change, especially if we all work together. So from now on, when somebody asks you, what is your favorite podcast? What is your response? Death by incarceration, of course. And if you heard it here first, then you know it's official. Y'all listening to Death by Incarceration with Kevin McCracken and Suave Gonzalez. Thank you so much for listening. Please support us on Patreon at Death by Incarceration Podcast. Hit that follow button on all platforms. Share with a friend or 10. Follow us on social media at Death by Incarceration on Instagram, at DB Incarceration on Twitter, at DBI underscore podcast on TikTok. For all booking and media requests, please email Kevin at Death by Incarceration Podcast.com. Death by Incarceration is a production of DBI Media LLC. Produced and written by Suave Gonzalez and Kevin McCracken. Editing by Jason Usry. Thanks to Crawlspace Media and Glassbox Media for being our partners. Please listen to our other shows, Injustice with Lisa Spees and Spencer Daniels, and watch for our upcoming special on the Camp Hill Riot of 1989. Special thanks to Checker for all their support of the show and to Kevin and Suave individually. We really appreciate it. Have a great week, everyone, and please, if you can, take action.
This is a Glass Box Media Podcast.